Tonight, I'm just in the last five minutes changed my message. I'm not going to preach what I'm going to preach next Sunday. Uh, I'll preach tonight what I had planned for tonight. I'm going to just talk about the matter of church discipline tonight because, you know, when you talk about discipline, you put somebody under discipline, people in the church have to understand where it comes from in the Bible. And over the years, uh, in three of the four churches I've been at, I've had to put somebody under discipline. And that's because of sin. And, and uh, you, you have to be careful because your, um, you know, your testimony in the world is very, very important. And so we're going to look at that tonight. And we're not going to, uh, uh, you know, uh, if you're worried that we've caught you, don't worry. That's not what this is about. I want to teach you from Scripture some things. And then we'll just uh, share from our heart. So I'm not really well prepared. I had these verses here. But uh, we're planning on doing this at some point in time. We're going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 to begin with. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 14. 1 Thessalonians 5, 14. I love Thessalonians. Uh, a great book. And... Uh, I'm going to do battle with this air conditioner tonight if I don't shut that off. First Thessalonians chapter five, verse 14. When you have that stand, a lot of churches don't have church discipline. They just let things continue. Uh, but the problem with that is the Bible said leaveth, leaven ruineth the whole. You know, if you have a, a, a loaf of bread and it has one little blue spot on it and you don't change the plastic on the outside and rip the blue off, what's going to happen the next week? You know, the whole thing's going to be blue. And so uh, we want to talk about that tonight. First Thessalonians 5.14, Paul is writing here, of course. And, and when we say Paul, it's still God's word. God inspired Paul to write this. It says here, we, now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly. Warn them that are unruly. Now, there's a lot of other things there, too, but we're not going to talk about those things tonight. Comfort the feeble-minded. Support the weak, be patient toward all men. Tonight we're talking about this first one. Warn them that are unruly. And that word can be mean and can be translated disorderly in your Bible. So warn people who are out of line, whether they're in sin or whether their behavior is bad, we have to warn them. God bless us tonight. We need so much for you to teach us as we take a look in your word for a walk in the world. And Lord, you dealt severely with the Corinthian church and the people who were in sin. But yet you're always so gracious to forgive and to receive us back into the fold. And tonight, as we look at this matter of discipline, help our folks to clearly understand how it works, the need for it, and for us to always be ready to answer every man uh, from your word on every subject. Bless now in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now we're going over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, and then verses 13 to 14. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, and 13 to 14. Years ago, we had a, a, a staff pastor here that was in a relationship with the choir lady. He was a married man, and we had to make him get up and repent before the church. I don't like to bring those memories up. It's been 15 years. He's with the Lord now. But you cannot just look the other way and ignore things like that. And all of you can think of a situation where you knew of a church or a family that ignored something. 
What was the result? Disaster. And so sin has to be dealt with. And while we realize not every sin is serious, the Bible does talk about some very serious things. Here it says, now we commend you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourself from every brother that walketh disorderly. Now, it's interesting to me that we're told here to walk, or dis, or excuse me, avoid brethren who walk disorderly. Yet Jesus teaches us to eat with sinners. So we're told to pull away from professing Christians who don't live right, yet spend time with sinners. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, I thought that's so interesting to me, and it seems like a conflict there. But it's not really. And the reason for that is when we call ourselves Christians, we're supposed to be Christ-like. That's what Christians mean, Christ-like. And when we're not Christ-like and we carry the name of Jesus, it's a bad testimony. And what do you do, pastor, when, you know, someone in your church has in the newspaper, the man up in a church up in Saudi, not when I was there and not the same scenario, but this man had extorted money. He sold policies to so many people in the church up there, extorted money from them, went to prison. And the newspaper, it said he's a member of such and such a Baptist church. If the church had dealt with that prior to that newspaper article, they could say, no, he's not a member of our church. We removed him from membership because the testimony of the church, that church went down from 500 down to about 20 or 30 people and has never recovered. So you have to deal with this stuff and, and that's what the Bible talks about. So first of all, withdraw yourselves from those that walk disorderly. Look at verse 14. If any man obey not in word, it goes on to say, four or five words later, have no company with him. Talking again about a brother in the church of Thessalonica, which was, by the way, the model church. But, you know, I, I said to the deacons tonight as we walked out of, out of our meeting, guys, the devil is going to try and get in this church. We've been growing. We've had some folks saved and baptized. Folks, folks have been joining. It's exciting. But you know what? The devil hates it. So he's going to stir up something. I don't know what. And I don't know who's going to be involved in it. I hope I'm not in the middle of it, but it could happen. So we have to be on guard at all times. Here it says, those that don't obey the word of this epistle have no company with them. Why? That he may be what? Ashamed. 1 Thessalonians chapter 6. We're backing up again. A lot of scripture tonight. More than uh, normal, but I just want you to see these scriptures and we'll, we'll explain it all and tie it all together later. First, first Thessalonians 6, 3 through 5. Paul has been teaching some sound doctrine. Here he says, if any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words. First Thessalonians 6, 3 through 5. And consent not to wholesome words. It goes on to say, the words of the Lord Jesus to the doctrine which is according to godliness, godly doctrine, the last four lines of verse five say what? From such withdraw thyself. Withdraw thyself. Talks about these words, verse four, he's proud, he, 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 he raises questions and strifes of words. And he talks about envy and strife and railings and evil surmisings. This kind of person you withdraw yourself from. Can't have anything to do with them. Now, these are people in the church of Thessalonica. 
We know Paul talked a lot about people who made wrecked havoc on the church inside and outside. And he talks about so many problems in so many churches. Now, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Back to 2. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 16 to 18. It says, But shun profane and vain babblings. Vain means empty. Shun profane and vain babblings, because it will increase unto more ungodliness. It goes on to say in verse 18, who concerning the truth have erred. So these are, and we're, in, we're now in 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 to 18. These people have erred. They've, they've taught empty doctrines that have, have hurt the church, brought about godliness. Look at verse 17. And their word will eat at does a canker. Mark that word canker. It's a Greek word. You all are familiar with this English word, gangrene. Brother Johnny's having his leg amputated at the knee tomorrow. Why? Because if he didn't, what would happen to Brother Johnny? It'll eventually kill him. The infection would get, circulate through his body and he would die. And sin in the church is not dealt with. Serious sin. What does it do to the church? Hurts the church. You can go all the way back and find the principles. Always in the Old Testament we have exaggerated principles. Why does God do that? He teaches us by hyperbole so often. Remember when Achan hid the treasure under the tent? The whole army's defeated. What was the punishment? Stone them. Now, we don't do that today. But boy, is that an example to get our attention on how our sin can harm our whole church family. Sometimes the devil tempts me and says, wouldn't that be fun? Go do that. And I realize, if I do that, what is that going to do to my family, to my church family? What's that going to do to my kids, to my grandkids? And I just have to stop and think, oh, man, thank you, Lord, for reminding me of the repercussions of serious sin. I was down with the whole, we had 17 of us down there, I told you, together. And, and uh, we, we messed around. I messed around with my sons all week. And I am so sore today. I, I, I mean, I, my shoulder's hurting. My ribs are hurting. I don't even know how it happened. That's the, the wonderful part of aging. Who was it that said getting old is not for sissies? <laughs> you know, but, but uh, you know, I think about how much I love my four sons and my daughter and how I wouldn't want them hurt by my bad testimony. And remember, when you do stuff like that, you're, you're hurting the next generation, the Bible says. The psalmist said, when I think about doing this, I realize I'm going to hurt generation after generation. Sin hurts. The word gangrene. So what do we do with someone with gangrene? We already gave you the example. We cut it off. Cut it off. And it's the same principle with sin. We have to deal with it. Now, we don't throw people physically out of the church. It's not what I'm getting at. Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. And let me, while you're turning there, Romans 16 Verse 17, let me share an example with you. My brother-in-law, who goes to a Baptist church, he and my sister for a while, earlier in their marriage, they were part of a Mennonite church. And the Mennonites have a thing called shunning. It's kind of like the Quakers and the Amish. And I mean, it's serious business. They demand that all their church people shun certain ones. And some of the things they shunned people for were so minor and my brother-in-law was upset because they were shunning this person after that person. And then he confronted the elders and said, where does it say shun someone? 
because they went to this store and bought something that you didn't agree with, that's not in the Bible to shun them. And he was shunned for asking them why they shunned this other person. So for several years, they would not speak to him in the city. When he went to church, they would turn this way. That's not what the Bible's teaching. But do remember, we just read a verse that said, shun those people which have serious sin. Not, not for some minor detail. And, uh, but here, shun them. Now Romans 16, 17. Shun these people who have erred in this serious canker they've caused on God in this. Now in Romans 16, 17. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them. Now that doesn't mean physically put a mark on their head or something, a swastika or something. But mark them which cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned. And what? Avoid them. So we do see that this is biblical, this idea of avoiding people, withdrawing from people, shunning people. That's all stated in Scripture. But the sins that are listed in Scripture that we need to shun people for or avoid people or remove them from church membership are listed in the Bible. Some people who are pastors who want to really control their people, control them to the point where they warn them that, you know, if, if they don't give 10% of their offerings, they're going to be shunned. I don't know who gets what here, and I don't want to know. <laughs> I've never counted the offering here. Don't know who gives, don't want to know. And pastors who say things like that, they're going to discipline people or shun them because they don't give. That pastor's so out of line, isn't he? You know that. But when it comes to serious sin, we realize here Romans says again, avoid them. Those that cause division and things contrary to the doctrine, avoid them. So clearly, we've already learned that false doctrine, you know, people who stir up by causing uh, division, people who teach things that cause ungodliness, uh, people who, who, uh, who, who uh, don't obey Scripture and walk disorderly. Those people have to be dealt with. Then we go to 1 Corinthians 5. And while you're turning there, we know the, the, the Lord's Supper passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says, people should not take the Lord's Supper if they have sin in their life, right? We always tell you when you take the Lord's Supper, confess your sins because the Bible said don't take it unworthily. Back in the early church in the apostolic age, people would be zapped dead uh, for taking the Lord's Supper when they shouldn't. Thank God he doesn't do that today. But we do know, we are told, and we do, and there's six sins listed there in 1 Corinthians 11, that if you're doing those things, you shouldn't take the Lord's Supper. And what we do, if someone's under discipline, we will not serve them the Lord's Supper. We will remove them from membership. And we can't have personal and private fellowship with them until they get to the place in their life where they realize they've done wrong and they repent or confess their sin, apologize to the church, and then what do you do? 2 Corinthians says you receive them back into the church. Forgive them. Receive them back. So God didn't die and leave us as judges, but he does say judge amongst yourselves, church. Judgment must begin at the house of God, Peter says. We'll look at those verses in a minute. But look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 1, it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication is not as so much as named among the Gentiles. And, and we know this was incest, one should have his, that one should have his father's wife. That's disgusting, you know. 
You're sleeping with your mother-in-law. It's just totally disgusting and gross. But he labels the sin as fornication. Fornication, the word is our word pornio. We get our word pornography from it. Did you know pornography is a church discipline offense? If someone's addicted to porn, they can't be a member of this church because that is fornication. A lot of people don't realize that. Fornication, though, is two young single people are sleeping together. On my street, there's a lady that sings in her church choir at a Baptist church on a regular basis, and she's living with a guy. If I knew that was happening here, I'd be saying, I'm sorry, ma'am, or I'm sorry, sir, you can't sing in our choir. It's, it's just a bad testimony. And so we, we see it's commonplace. Do you know churches, it's common now, even in Baptist churches, good Bible teaching, preaching churches, there are people living together, attend church on a regular basis. Some of them are involved. They teach Sunday school. They do different things in the church. Folks, that's a disappointment to God, to say the least. You know, we, we want people to have a good testimony who lead and serve. So he says there's fornication. Now look at verse 7. What does it say? Purge out therefore the leaven. How do you purge leaven out of the church? Do we pick people up, throw them on our shoulders and carry them out to the parking lot and say leave? No, of course not. In fact, someone who's under church discipline can still sit in a church service. But if someone that's a member of this church is committing fornication, we have to vote them out of membership. Now, we do it biblically. First, we go to them and confront them. Then we confront them with witnesses. And then if they continue to sin, then they're brought before the whole church. That's church discipline. It's done in love. Years ago, I was a young kid in the church and two men in our church got into it and the one guy was just screaming all the faults of the other guy at him. We got in the car and my dad said, and I said, boy, that guy's really doing a lot of things wrong. My dad said, but the way the guy confronted him was just as wrong as what the person's doing. So we don't do this in the flesh. And every time I've had to be part of discipline, I've always shed tears because I absolutely hate to have to discipline someone. Do you know what it's like as a pastor to have to discipline someone? We had a wonderful young lady in our church one time. She's pregnant out of wedlock. Obviously, she had done the wrong thing. And uh, we, we had to confront her. And uh, she was, she was uh, to the point in her Christian walk where she realized she had done something terribly wrong. She had been doing something terribly wrong. And she got up and asked the church for forgiveness. She said, I've sinned. You know what our church people forgave her? And she's received back into fellowship, but it took some time for her to get her life straightened out and the relationship. And I know it was so hard for her to get up and ask for forgiveness, but church discipline is certainly biblical and we have to purge out the leaven or the whole church will suffer. So he says here to purge out the old leaven. Verse nine, I wrote unto you an epistle not to company with fornicators. Yet not, all, not just with fornicators, I'm paraphrasing, but with those who are covetous, extortioners, idol worshipers, I'm paraphrasing all that. Pastor, covetousness, is that really serious? It's one of the Ten Commandments. This doesn't just mean to have a thought about, I wish I had that, you know, nice car. I wish I had Mike's nice car. I don't even know what Mike drives, by the way, but that would be a covetous thought. But a person who practices coveting is a person who uh, actually, the verb is, is actually 
you know, attempts to get the things that he shouldn't have. Like coveting another man's wife. Everyone, all the men that are here, knows they've had a struggle their whole life with thoughts about women. Just the thought isn't the problem. Acting on the thought is. You know, yield not to temptation, for yielding is sin. So if you see a, a, a woman you covet or a car you covet, you need to immediately gird up the loins of your mind, quote some scripture, and put that thought out of there. But if you act on that thought and you pursue that thing you're not supposed to have, that is a, an offense where you can be put out of the church. You're part of the leaven that needs to be removed. Extortion, obviously. Idolatry, obviously. No one questions that. And he says here in verse 11, he's talking to Christians now. But now I have written unto you not to keep company if a man that's called a brother. There's the key. If he's called a brother and he's a fornicator, covetous, an idolater, a railer. What's a railer? That's a person who runs their big mouth and causes problems in a church. All of you have been part of a church where you had some big mouth person. You remember when I preached on all the fish? We talked about the catfish loves dirty water. The Christian loves the world. We talked about the stingray offending people. We talked about the jellyfish, no backbone. One of them was the largemouth bass. <laughs> and in every church you have a largemouth bass. And if you let that person run their mouth, I mean, these are people, they have no trouble getting in an argument in the parking lot. No trouble yelling at somebody. No trouble, uh, you know, just, just, we could go on and on. You know what I'm talking about. And those kinds of people have split churches. They have to be called into question. They have to be called out and dealt with because a railer can split a church. And I don't, notice it says a drunkard. A drunkard, well, that would include so many things, and I, I, wanna, I want you to understand, it's just as wrong to be addicted to prescription, dr prescription drugs as it is to be addicted to alcohol. We hear a lot about drunkenness and drugs, and yet in churches there are people who have become addicted to a drug. They didn't mean to. They were given maybe morphine, and they just got addicted to it. I had a dear lady in Okinawa came up to my church and said, my wife had a procedure and got out of the hospital. Do you have some morphine left over? My wife came home and I thought, that sounds suspicious. Did you know it's illegal to give prescriptions to friends? There's a reason it's illegal is because there are people who secretly are addicted. And you don't know it and you give them your extra bottle because you're going to throw it away anyway and they're a friend. And you can cause great harm. Now I'm not being extreme on it. I mean I've taken a pill of my wife's a time or two and she's taken something of mine we're married but what if I became addicted to her prescription drugs then she'd have to say hey wait a minute you, you've taken I've noticed several in the bottle are gone you know I'm not by the way you may think I am by my leadership but I'm not but um, we have to be careful even with those people we really trust and know and I know over the years I've had kids with something like maybe a poison oak and I've got some leftover uh uh, what do you call it? Not steroids. Is it steroids? Yeah. And what? Huh? Yes. And I've broken off a piece and given it to them to get them through the poison oak. Technically, that's wrong. We wouldn't de-church someone. But if I became addicted to prescriptions or you did, it's the same as being a drunkard. You're being controlled by a substance. And here he says, drunkards. Not to be, keep company with anyone. And then look what he says. 
and such an one know not to eat. You can't even fellowship with people like that. You can't meet them for lunch. They're not supposed to take the Lord's Supper. And that, as a young pastor, that seems so hard. When I had to discipline people and I thought, now Jesus said, go ahead and eat with sinners, but I can't eat lunch with Brother Mike because he's a drug addict. No, Mike's not a drug addict, you know that. But that didn't make sense to me. And as a, as a student of the word, I went to my Bible languages and my commentaries and my advisors and I just studied and studied and sought this out. And I can't really explain, you know, everything about that, but I can say this. We are supposed to reach sinners. We're supposed to be a light in the world. And Jesus wants us to, to eat lunch with the lost and win them to him. So we do have that calling. But he wants us to avoid Christians who walk disorderly. And, and so over the years, I've struggled with all that. Now look at verse 13. And this really helps clear it up. But them that are without, that means outside of the church, God judges. Lost people are going to stand before God at the great white throne judgment, aren't they? They're going to be thrown forever in the lake of hell. That should bother us, by the way. It should hurt us. We should want people saved. But God judges people outside the church. But look what it says. Therefore, put away among yourselves that wicked person. Put them away. So it's cleared up in that statement. God deals with the lost. We have to deal in the church with the saved. Now we're looking at a, a few more verses, but let me just share some reasons for church discipline. Number one, we practice church discipline because the world is watching. If we have in our church an insurance salesman who scammed everybody in the church and extorted money, Someone comes up to you and says, Sister Lorraine, you see a member of your church? You see what that does? Lorraine can say, no, actually, we've removed him from membership because of his sin. You see, if she says yes, they're going to say, well, what kind of church do you have there? Because the world's watching us. What kind, of church, what kind of church is that? This guy's extorted money from my friend and my neighbor. And he's a member of your church. And that's just bad. And as a pastor, I would be so embarrassed if I couldn't say, we've dealt with that. Because the person who says they're a Christian and doesn't live like Christ, you see, may very well be lost anyway. I'm not saying they are, but their testimony is a hindrance to the church. And so he says, Put away that person, that wicked person. Put him away. Put him out. Purge him out. What? How do we do that? Not physically throwing them out, but we do not allow them to hold a membership. We do not allow them to hold a position. We do not allow them to lead, to sing in the choir. We do not allow any of that. And if they come to take the Lord's Supper, we'll go over and gently say, please don't take the Lord's Supper until you've made things right. And we'll do it in love. And if they get right, praise God, it's over and we cannot look past. We need to forget the things which are behind and press towards the mark of the Lord Jesus Christ to move forward. Amen. And let me say this to you. Maybe a lot of us have done a lot of these things 
prior to getting saved or right with God. And that always should cause us to be a little compassionate towards people who have a big problem with sin in their life. And we want them restored, we want them right. So why do we do it? First of all, because God's word says so. That's number one I should have said first, because God's word says so. He said, put them out of the church of Corinth. Number two, because the world's watching. Third, because people will identify with you and with your church and consider your church a bunch of hypocrites. You know what hurts a church? When you see a, a newspaper article that a pastor of this church uh, has had immoral affairs. I preached at a church down in, in Atlanta, Phillips Drive Baptist, a big, big church. It was Jack Howell's daughter's husband, Jack Howell's son-in-law and, and wife. He was the pastor there. And I went down there and I preached. And my wife, um, we got in the car and my wife said, that pastor was looking at me inappropriately. And I said, Mary, he's, he's so-and-so. You know, he, he's, this is a big church. He's not looking at you. She said, I can tell you he was. And do you know, a week later, seven women accused him. And they had evidence that he was immoral. He's no longer a pastor. You know what that did to that church? I preached there. Maybe 10 years later, there were 40 people there. You see what that does? We all know what that does. And so sin is a reproach to the church. And, uh, and so it's difficult to accept that. And some people, some of you may say, well, I, I don't think we should ever use discipline. I, I don't think, and, and I understand that. But, you know, as the pastor here, God smotes my heart and leads me in certain ways that you may not always agree with, but I promise you that when you do things God's way, it's always rewarding and always right. I've always had a great amount of fear. I thought when the young girl got pregnant, we're going to lose that family. We never lost that family. They lived and, and, and respected me. We had a great relationship. So while it seems difficult and you have that great fear, and sometimes, uh, you know, you know that some churches have a bunch of people related. You got four or five families and they're related. And if you have to deal with one of the families on discipline, you can lose several families, but God can bring families in. See, this is God's church. If we do things right and stand for what's right, God will take care of us. And so we have to do what's right because God says so. Another thing we have to look at, two more verses. And one we want to look at is uh, 1 Peter 4, 17. And I, I can quote it to you. It just says, judgment begins at the house of God. You know, we're always talking about our world and we're always talking about, you know, I hear Christians day in and day out talk about, you know, Washington, D.C., you know, all these things and how terrible our world is. But the fact is we cannot change this world by just voting. We need to vote, but we change this world by winning people to Jesus Christ and discipling those people. When someone's truly born again, remember we talked about metamorphosis this morning, how that Caterpillar becomes a butterfly, a complete change. When someone's truly saved, what's going to happen to their thinking? Eventually they're going to think, you know, abortion is wrong. Sodomy is wrong. Marriage is a man and a woman. And they're going to think differently. We can't expect the world to think like we do. 
The world looks at us and thinks we're nuts. We look at them and know they're nuts. <laughs> but why should we expect people to think like we do? And I tell Christians, and I've told them this over the years. Years ago, I went in a store with a guy and he said, I don't like the music they're playing over this intercom. And he started to march up. Young 20-something-year-old guy. I said, what are you doing? You expect them to put amazing grace on because you walk in the door? People don't know the Lord. They live like the world. Their philosophy is not our philosophy. We have a different philosophy than the world. And we have to understand, we can't expect people to think like we do who have not been regenerated. What happens when you're regenerated? The Holy Spirit moves inside and gives you new life. What does a generator do to a car? We used to call them generators, now they're alternators. It pumps new life into that car, right? Gets that battery built up. And I'm, I'm long-winded tonight. I know it's after six. We need to close. But finally, verse 12, put away that person from among you. And we mentioned a few weeks ago, we had someone in our church that has been doing some things that are disorderly. And uh, we, we, we explained what they were. And now he's back in another jail in another place. And so uh, we just want you to know we have to deal with it as a church. We already told you we would deal with it. And we're getting to the point where the deacons and I are just going to have to um, remove him from the rolls. And it breaks my heart because you, you just, you don't want to see sin and you don't want to see the consequences of sin. But for the cause of Christ in the name of Jesus Christ, you have to deal with it. I, I, I'm glad we don't have to do what Joshua had to do with AI, with Achan. Boy, that'd be hard to do. And I want to say, he who hath no fault can cast the first stone. So this is something that breaks our heart and makes us cry. It's not something we say, aha, we caught you. And boy, I can't wait to throw the stone. Because sometimes we have that kind of attitude in church. And remember this, we are no better than anyone else. We're saved by grace. All the work of Jesus. Thank God for Jesus and what he's done in our life. And, and that, you know, by God's grace, I'm not in jail. And you're not in jail. Because all of us could be there. All of us could be in trouble tonight. So we want to just pray for those, love them, but we cannot fellowship. We cannot fellowship. I had a guy years ago, his daughter was not living with him, but just so deep in sin. And he would kill buyer everything and pay for everything and do everything for his daughter. And I said, brother, you got to stop doing that. She's out of fellowship with God. You don't need to battle her out of all these troubles. When she gets right with God, you can give her the, everything but the kitchen sink if you want to. But when someone's out of fellowship, you cannot provide for them and fellowship with them and eat with them, break the Lord's Supper with them, hang around with them. Why? They're going to bring your testimony down as well. If I'm always in the community seen with someone that the people in the community know as a drug addict or a drug dealer or a drunkard, and he goes to church, it's going to harm my testimony as well. We're going to say, well, Brother Dan's always with that guy. I mean, he goes to such and such a church, but we know what he, how he lives. Hey, we just can't do that. My dad was a young Christian. Well, he was saved at an early age, but he um, <clears throat> was not mature like he should have been. Just because you've been saved 50 years doesn't make you a mature Christian. You understand that. There are people who been saved forever, hadn't been in the Word, hadn't grown, and are still weak. And my dad had been saved for years, but we were in a church where he's really marking his Bible and learning. And 
uh, man in the church kept, stayed on my dad about smoking all the time. My dad did quit smoking in his 40s and didn't smoke the last 30 years of his life, but my dad was a smoker and that guy was always on him. So my dad quit smoking, that's a good thing. The bad thing is he saw that guy going in a porn shop two different times. First time he thought, wait, I must not have seen right. The second time he stopped, got close and waited for him to come out. And we left that church. We left that church. And uh, years later, we found out other people in that church had known about that. Now, if they had disciplined that guy, would we have left that church? He was a leader in sin, and my dad was a weaker brother. It's serious business, and we have to obey the Word of God. Let's pray. God, thank you for your Word. A tough subject tonight, Lord, and I wanted to present it in your way and not to offend anybody. And, and Lord, thank you for being here with us and for guiding us through this. And just pray that as a church, we'll always do the right thing. And reaching the lost, encouraging the brethren, help the down, feeble-minded, but also at times we just have to rebuke and stand for things that are difficult. Bless now in Jesus' name.